0: helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hi there. Today we are talking to Christy
1: Coulter author of the new memoir, Exit Interview, and author of Nothing Good Can Come From This, a finalist for the Washington State Book Award, and her work has appeared in New York Magazine, The Paris Review, Elle, Glamour, and many other publications. She lives in Seattle and LA with her husband, and Golden Retriever. And Christy also uh, came on this podcast right when it started, I think she was episode 18 on working,
0: drinking, and being a first world woman. So if you want to listen to that one, it's com forward slash
1: 18. Christy and I actually go way back. I heard her on a podcast when I was, I think, 97 days sober. So this is over seven years ago. I had heard her on a podcast, so if you're listening to this, I actually had people reach out to me all the time and wrote her, found her email, not that I'm a stalker, and wrote her and was like, hey, you're in Seattle, I'm in Seattle, you worked in tech, I work in tech, and I'm sober, <laughs> and never expected to hear from her, and Christy, welcome, you wrote me back, like, three days, yeah. days later. Yeah, I was thrilled because I was like, "Are there any sober women in Seattle?" I, th- I think I had said something on the podcast about like I need friends who are sober, and there's nobody here. <laughs> and you were like, "Hi, I'm here, so of course i was going to write you back." It was like, and then we met in person, not not that long after. Yeah. Well, it I was think a month. Probably. We, both had, we both were pen pals. Uh, Bell Robertson from About Drinking. She was my coach. Yeah. And and she wasn't my coach, but I had done the challenge. So we and we were friendly at that point. And she came to Seattle. And we all met at a coffee shop. Yeah, just a Starbucks in a neighborhood. And then our friend started doing like sober women dinner parties, which was so cool. And that was really fun. Yeah, it was really fun. So we go way back. If anyone hasn't read the book, nothing good can come from this. Definitely do. We're going to talk about it in this interview. But after we met and I felt like, Oh my God, I know a famous person. (laughs) This article that went completely viral called Anjali. And like in every sober book group I was in, people were talking about it and sharing it. It was wonderful. Thank you. That went insane. That was, you know, I slapped that up there to see if I could get a couple hundred reads or something. And like eight days later, I was on like Radio Scotland. (laughs) I've never had anything like that happen in my life. I mean, most people won't. You know, it's just one of those things where lightning strikes. And someone from Medium where I published it had the editor just liked it. And so they, you know, promoted it. And it just took off from there. It was the craziest experience of my life. Yeah, it was amazing, and I think it really it was incredibly well written, and it was like that perfect blend of like sarcasm slash snarky Mm. slash earnest, which I'm a big fan of. But right, right, do you think it was about that article that like resonated with people who were like on this sober path or women in working? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think part of it was that you know, it I. It was (laughs) written, and it was funny, I think, which people are not used to when they're reading about sobriety. It tends to be super earnest, Um, but I think it just hit something in the zeitgeist that I thought only bothered me, which was the selling of drinking to women as feminism. Yeah. Um, Over drinking, especially, you know, that like, oh, drinking means you've made it. Drinking means you've arrived. And I had been sober almost three years at that point. And I had realized that I had been drinking to tolerate my life. And so it just started to annoy me that like women were being told that drinking and having hangovers means you've achieved equality with men yeah. eventually. Because I was like, yeah. you have not achieved equality with men. And also, this is not the kind of quality you want, you know, to like also die of alcohol related causes. And so it turned out a lot of people were also just women were like, oh, I didn't realize this was bothering me, but it is. Yeah. Um, And I had articulated that. And then it also just made a ton of people mad at me, too. Like men were furious. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. I mean, the usual men who are just losers hated me, you know, like like, they were like, you know, feminazi was thrown at me, and uh, but there were some women who were just furious to the point where I was like, okay, this sounds a little too personal. What's going on with I think you protest (laughs) too much. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, they were just like, one woman was like, I wrote, I'm writing in utter loathing. And I was like, girl, I'm not worth that kind of rent-free space in your in your head like what's going on because i don't even then like i don't care if other people drink like do what you want i was not like coming to take your margarita from you. um but but yeah so, so there was all this anger and and like getting ridiculed like the new york post ridiculed me and i remember my office mate at amazon at one point she said oh have you seen time magazine today and I was like, that's a weird question to ask. And I was like, there's only one reason you're asking that, right? You're under- they're writing my about nervous. me. I nervous. Nervous. How is that not in your bio? Like, no, I know, I'm, right? I would add that one in. <laughs> I should, especially because growing up in the seventies, you know, my parents subscribed to time. Oh yeah. My grandparents like- did. You yeah, know? exactly. It was like we had Time and U.S. News and World Report. And I remember going through Time magazines like a two year old just looking at the picture. So it was really weird. And they were like Time. I mean, it's Time. They weren't like abusive, but they were definitely like, yeah, she thinks that the patriarchy is making women drink and that's stupid. And I just remember being like, this is so strange. But also knowing that being ridiculed in these national magazines, I was like, this is good. Like, This is making it. This is opportunity. And I had a book deal, you know, like two weeks later. So that's insane. That's yeah. So I'm like, ridicule all you want. (laughs) Well, I have to say that I was in all the sober groups. I had taken hip Mm -hmm. sobriety school with Holly Whitaker before she wrote Quit Like a Woman. I was in a bunch of these, and every woman I knew was like, oh my God, I fucking love this. Like, this is. Mm -hmm. You have to read it. You were passing it around and you're completely right. And, and this is related to exit interview. Um, mm-hmm. your new book, it talked about how we do
0: drink to tolerate the, mm-hmm. you know, death of a thousand cuts of like microaggressions and stress and overwhelm and imposter syndrome and mm-hmm. bullshit. And then all the expectations of how
1: you should look and how you should act. And. You know, women bond over drinking when they can't express how awful this shit is, right? Right, right, right. Because you're not going to say to someone, oh, let's have, I mean, I might now, but you wouldn't be like, let's have coffee and vent about how difficult. Now I totally would. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, now I'd be like, let's just get it out. But, you know, you would have drinks and then you, you know, I love you. I love you too. And then it's like, sometimes I feel like an imposter. And then it's, you know, all that, but, but right at the time you couldn't, it's funny. There were some, I was just thinking there were some men in sober groups who, who were really mad at me. Like women were mostly the sober women were cool, but there were some men who were like, if you're expressing anger, that means you're a dry drunk, Um, you know? Yeah. A, a a real sober person would just be grateful all the time. Um, and I was just like, Oh, come on. You
2: yeah. know, like, like yeah. it was, it
1: was actually really disappointing that sober men decided to line up on the side of like men, men, and it wasn't <laughs> yeah. even anti even men, it was just. Funny, sarcastic, snarky, because it was so pointed and insightful. Like things are Mm. funny because they're true and memoir on like the way you see the world or like why you drink and the clarity that comes when you stop drinking. And I don't know any woman who has stopped drinking who doesn't go through like the sadness and blaming themselves and like wishing for the romantic version and then feeling other than And then anger, like, right, right. You companies, this is bullshit. Like, yeah, yeah. Anger is real. real And there is plenty for any woman sober or not to be angry about. Like, I think these men would say, like, the fact that I'm angry about what happened with Roe v. Wade, they'd probably be like, well, where's your gratitude? Well, fuck my gratitude. There is no gratitude. Yeah. You took my bodily autonomy away. So, like, sorry, I'm not going to thank you for that. And uh yeah, and I think that, that so that was really I have fewer rights than my mother had. Thank you for that. Yeah, like like gratitude, you know. And and it's funny, I've been saying to people, I don't know if you've seen Barbie yet, but um Yes, and there were parts yeah. of your book that I underlined yes. I was like I sent them, I texted them to you last night. I was like, Yeah, oh my god, this is the speech from Barbie. Mm-hmm. But it's so true and it's so universal. It was so wild, like the speech about how it's impossible to be a woman because, you know, Anjali talked about that some and then this book, you know, has some stuff in it. But also I've been telling people I've seen actually seen Barbie three times now. which I didn't plan to, but it just keeps happening. And being anti-patriarchy and being anti-man are two completely different things Right, yes. like like patriarchy is a system that yes was built by and for men, but like people keep saying, "Oh, the movie's misandrous." i like, it is no, it is anti-patriarchy. The yes. movie has great affection for its male characters, um, despite the fact that they don't really do anything. And I I kind of love Alan. Does everyone love Alan? I love Alan. Alan yeah. with his little knit romper from the Oh, my God. I love it. He's So the other thing I love is, I mean, I'm a child of the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. You know, graduated high school in 93, college in 97. So first of all, the Indigo Girl song. I was like, yes. Love this song. I know. They also loved, oh, my God, was it Matchbox 20? The song with that the men yes. like. I want to push you around like I want to take you for granted but I loved when all the guys were playing the guitar sorry for anyone who hasn't seen it and all the Barbies are like looking up with them fluttering their eyelashes like this does apply to the book and then they all stand up and leave the guys and the guys go from popped up to brutally insecure and I was like oh, my God, I fucking love that so much. Yeah, like, it that's... was amazing. And that song, like, of course, I'd heard that song, but, you know, I grew up in the 80s. So, and I was like, wow, this song was it. I mean, the song, that's, it's a brutal song. It was No, but I always song. loved it, but I never thought about the words. I mean, it's got a great right. theme, but then when you listen to the words, you're like, holy shit. I was like, wait a second. And I can see how it's like, you know, just like people talk about like in sex, like there could be consensual violence or whatever and that's fine and in this oh. possible song maybe it's fine, but i was like the way that they're singing it it really it just sound awful yes. <laughs> um and yeah that was that's i really uh, honestly i yeah i love the movie i think it's great yeah, uh, it's it's interesting. Cool. It's funny. we actually saw the barbie movie because we couldn't get tickets to taylor swift so we went on mm-hmm. night when taylor swift was in seattle mm-hmm. and it was my daughter and one of her best friends and me and one of her best friends' moms. So two moms, two nine-year-old girls. And yeah. Lila and I always talk about the patriarchy. We talk about diet mm-hmm. culture. We talk about the industrial beauty complex, which is hysterical. because mm-hmm. I used to work at L'Oreal, I'm like, fun <laughs> and bullshit. You know, like, yeah. Enjoy all your makeup unless you feel like you're less than without it. Do it because it's fun. But we talk about the, like, she has t-shirts, like, it's a beautiful day to smash the patriarchy. I love it. So she, like, we went in there and she was like, she got it. She completely got it. But there were parts where America Fiera, the the woman, was talking to all the 40-year-old moms. And we were like, and her best friend's mother were like, fuck, I have not seen a movie in ages that talks to me this way. Exactly. It's really unusual. And I see a ton of movies, including like lots of like art house, indie feminist films. And like for a movie like this, this like candy colored summer comedy to talk. I don't know if I've ever heard the word patriarchy in one of these films. Certainly and just talk not, like, that, like directly. Times, right? <laughs> exactly. I was stunned. And, and the first time I saw it, I was like, well, you know, the, the, the explanation of feminism is a little 101, a little basic. But then I was like, look, Get your head out of your ass, Christy. Like, I've taken graduate level women's. I know, I was going to read... say, like, I don't know if PhD type stuff on feminism needs to be. Right. Like, yeah. I read, you know, French feminists in the original French. I was like, they are not talking to you. But, like, girls and women, grown women who have not been steeped in that stuff, like, I honestly think in like 10 years, we could look back at the triad of Barbie, the summer of Taylor Swift, and the Dobbs decision. Uh-huh. As like the moment a spark got lit in a lot of young, you know, like grown women, but also like young girls. I think there will be like think pieces in ten years. I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> I hope it doesn't just fade away. Yeah, but hope totally. it's about, so. You know. I want so I texted you last night, and there were mm-hmm. two different parts of your book that I was like, would you be up for yeah. reading? There are these. I want yeah. to start with the part that is related to what we just talked about because it was so right on professional help but both of them reminded me of this. Well, okay. Step back. No one knows what exit interviews about <laughs> work at Amazon forever. We know each other way yep. too well. So tell us about your book. Yes. So my book is called Exit Interview. The subtitle is The Life and Death of My Ambitious Career. And basically I worked at Amazon in fairly high level roles for 12 years. And this book is a memoir. It's a memoir of my entire working life, but it's especially a memoir of working at Amazon in an environment. First of all, the Amazon environment, which is notoriously brutal, can confirm um, what you've heard in the news and also as a woman in that environment where at my level, I think it was like 20% female, you know, at Amazon, when you start at entry level, it's about 50-50 gender balance and then women just disappear as you go up the levels. And by the time you get to like senior vice presidents, it's minuscule. I think it's like less than 10%. So I wanted to write about that. And when I left Amazon, I was in the ninety eighth percentile for tenure, meaning I've been there longer than ninety eight percent of all employees globally and I was not offered an in-person exit interview and that's that <laughs> that is it really insane. did not sit well with me twelve <laughs> I mean, years of your life. yeah, as one of very few women women in a, a high leadership role and mm-hmm. I was just like, you know, I want to have my say. Yeah. Um. So I thought, well, maybe I'll just write a book and see. <laughs> They're like, oh, <laughs> the goddamn exit. Yeah. Interview. There was there was one um, there was one review on Goodreads. an early reviewer, and she was like, you know, I didn't like this book because she it's called Exit Interview, but she doesn't get an exit interview. And I was kind of like, well, that's the point. <laughs> like, I know I didn't get an exit interview. That's why I wrote it. But I um, so I. And I know there's all this curiosity about Amazon as a working environment just because there's been so much reporting and but there hadn't been a really inside story and I think the last memoir about Amazon was written like t- almost twenty years ago, maybe a full twenty years ago. Just kind of um, a- yeah, I mean, I read it when I was interviewing for Amazon. It's by a ga- guy named James Marcus, who was like. An early employee at a time when it was a very, very different company, a tiny company. It's a great book, but it was just, you know, it's it's a different world now. The other thing is I noticed that women don't write about work enough.
0: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I cannot believe how fast this year is flying by. We're all busy, but one of the most important things you can do to make sure you're on the right path is to carve out some time to celebrate your victories and to notice what you've wanted to change but haven't been able to yet. Whether you're navigating sobriety, setting boundaries, or striving to be the best version of yourself, therapy can be a game changer. Therapy is for anyone looking for growth and support. And if you're considering it, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's convenient, it's flexible, and it's entirely online. So take a moment for yourself and visit betterhelp.com forward slash someday to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. .com/someday When I was drinking, I used alcohol to calm my mind, to relieve anxiety and to sleep well at the end of a busy day. I didn't know that alcohol actually spiked my stress hormone, increased anxiety, and as little as one glass of wine a night reduced my sleep quality by 24%. I was really excited to find Tanasi, a better way to find calm, rest, relief, and to reduce inflammation. To get 25% off your first order with the promo code HELLO and get ready to sleep well.
1: There are not a lot of memoirs out there, really by men either, but especially by women about their working lives. And I thought that was crazy because we spend so much time at work and work is, you know, we meet spouses at work, we act out like old family dramas, we have friendships, Um, and I just thought, why don't we write about work? I think the office is a really interesting place. And so I wanted to to do that too. Can I read you something that Mm -hmm. someone wrote me um with a podcast, need, idea, et cetera, like Mm -hmm. a week ago. And I wrote her back and I was like, I am interviewing Christy Coulter. We're (laughs) gonna talk about this. Okay. I mean, a lot of your book also mentions drinking. I mean, you drank Mm -hmm. a lot at Amazon as I did in all of
0: my uh places. You talk about drinking a bottle of wine a night, you talk about Mm -hmm. getting soaked and navigating the workplace without alcohol. So I want to read you Mm -hmm.
1: this email is sort of framing some of what we're talking about. So she said, I'm an older woman executive working in consulting for the financial services industry. I find that the culture is quasi toxic. It's all about upping the ante, doing more with less. I have Mm -hmm. listened to many of your podcasts and I think it would be great to have one on how to handle corporate stress, literally. For example, Mm -hmm. how do you handle an
0: endless array of meetings as the entire company can book meetings on my calendar, the pressure to constantly do more, the feeling of always being behind and undervalued, working on the weekends, um, dealing with senior management that produces production reports on output. Like, what do you do to cope with these pressures and not drink? And I was just like, that's
1: your whole book. <laughs> that's what I drank. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So I was, I drank for about half my Amazon career and I was sober for about half of it. So I had this really interesting, like, A B test, in <laughs> tech terms. Um, and, I would say, you know, I don't know that I coped that much better sober. Um, it it's not like it was a magic bullet to make my work stress go away. When I when I first quit, I, I kind of was like I was in a job at Amazon that it was not the right role for me and it was also a complete cluster fuck. You know, it was just like There was just no way to succeed, both because of my natural inclinations and because it was a disaster. And I thought, oh, if I just get sober, I'll have more energy and be more focused and I'll nail this job. And about six six months into sobriety, I was like, okay, I am much sharper and clearer now. And I know this is a disaster. I could very clearly see what a mess the organization was. And also that it was a bad job for me personally. And I was kind of mad. I was like, "What sobriety was supposed to fix all this. I'm still miserable, you know? And what I ended up doing was changing roles. And, And the nice thing about a company like Amazon is it's huge. There's always a job somewhere. You know, and they encouraged you. I mean, you're you're they they welcome people moving around. So I actually kind of took a step back. I took a job that was easy for me most of the time, and I felt really guilty about that. But then I realized that like, nobody cared. Like yes. it was okay if I did that. And I even had coffee with a VP at one point, and I said, I feel really guilty that I've. Done this. And she was like, why? Everybody has to coast at some point. Yeah. And I was like, I really? I'm allowed? Guilty. Did you feel guilty about like, I'm not representing women by climbing up? Did you feel guilty about like disappointing people? Like, what was it? Well, it was the first job in my life that I ever, the first role I'd ever really felt like I failed at. And I mean, mm-hmm. when I say fail, like I was doing, that was fine. I was doing okay, but there were people who would be better at, at it. So part of it was that, like, I was the kind of person who always did even better than people expected. And for the first time, I was like, oh, I, I'm not good at this. And so that I had this shame around that. And then I also felt Amazon wants you to feel guilty if you're not almost drowning at yeah. at, at every point. You're not doing enough unless you're doing too much. And I took this job where, I mean, I did have to learn a lot of new stuff. And at times, it was really, really challenging. But for long stretches, I was like, oh, I'm actually a little bit bored. Like, this is really, really chill. It was in leadership development, which operated almost like an academic department. So it was like going from Amazon to a university, (laughs) you know, like this quiet office. and, And I just felt like, oh, I'm not being a true Amazonian, which was because I don't want to like kill myself, or you know, metaphor. Right. And the thing is, nobody was telling me that it was all me. And eventually, I came down to like, okay, but do you want to stay sober? Yes. Um, because you're gonna, you need this rest. You absolutely. And, and I thought about leaving the company, but I was like, yeah, if I can take this job, and it was set up as a rotational role, so I was going to be in it for. It was supposed to be two years. I ended up leaving a little before that. I was like, just take this break. Take it. I thought of it as like an internal sabbatical and I had basically had to choose myself over being like the perfect Amazonian. Well, so chose I- to be happier and healthier, right? Like yeah, in- for the long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think so. I've seen this so much with the women I work with and with myself where. A lot of times we drink to tolerate the life that we are living, right? The right. endless demands, the death of a thousand cuts, the, un, you know, unreasonable work expectations for mm. people of a family, you know, all those things. And then you stop drinking. And yes, Man. you no longer have the hangovers and the extra anxiety and all the shit that comes with right. it. Right. But You still like, you're still living the same life you were drinking to tolerate. And so then you need to shift different parts of it. And, but you see it clearly Mm. and you realize you're not a victim and you don't have that like crushing. I suck. If anyone knew, you Mm -hmm. know, shit going on. But Mm. yeah, I have client who worked at a private university and was dean of students and went back to being faculty full-time without right. that. I, you know, I have clients who have like switched jobs to like you, like an internal transfer. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I did that as well at L'Oreal, but it wasn't by choice because mm-hmm. I just apparently can't quit jobs I hate. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> God knows why. But uh-huh. I was in line for a promotion to BP. I talked with my mm-hmm. boss about it like multiple times. I basically was like doing her job for a year. And mm-hmm. then there was a huge reorg. And I got transferred laterally to a new group mm-hmm. that they didn't consult me on. They took my team away. They gave it to someone who I thought was utterly unqualified, who I'm sure does mm-hmm. not listen to this podcast. <laughs> and I was rageful. I was like... Mm-hmm worked here for three fucking years i wouldn't have interviewed mm-hmm. for this job this is bullshit yada 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 turns out it was the best thing that ever could have happened to mm-hmm. me. like mm-hmm. my new boss was amazing most of the people are on the east coast so by four o'clock i was left
0: alone
1: it nice. was like, yeah. like wait you're gonna pay me the exact same money to not be so stressed i'm waking up at midnight with my alarm to check the numbers like Mm -hmm. Oh my God, this is amazing. Thank you. That did enable me to be happier and to stay sober. Mm -hmm. And just, I was like, I didn't know how much lighter I could feel. And this woman's email goes back to say, I can handle a lot of life without alcohol. But when Mm -hmm. it comes to the endless array of corporate demands, after five or six days, I crack and drink wine. Sometimes I feel like this pattern won't change until I can actually change my job. And I don't think that you shouldn't wait till your job changes to quit. No, it is possible. People do stop drinking and it is way, way better in a super stressful job. And then you can make changes. So don't think I have
0: to keep drinking because of this job, but you are not wrong that like that job might make you want to drink and that yeah
1: good information you know like i yeah like like i would say to her like that if you quit drinking things will get easier you like your the job is probably harder than she even realizes because of the drinking but then also the fact that she's a consultant is interesting because it's like is she how much of this is corporate is Strictly coming from corporate stress and how much of it is like does she have too many clients is she taking on too much you know i don't know but these are questions if she quits drinking and just don't change anything else for a while just just don't and don't even i see women be like and i also gave up sugar and i also gave up caffeine oh and God, i'm just God, like yeah. you're gonna don't fail do. like go get yeah. some sugar right now you know um wait. and don't worry if you gain a little weight your portion whatever just just stay sober. And but then she might start to be able to say, oh, well, I actually do need to have 10% fewer clients. And can I afford to do that? And how can I make that? happen?" You know, and then you can make these small tactical changes. And I think often people are waiting for some huge mindset shifts that'll make it easy. Like now I'm empowered. It doesn't always work that way. Sometimes it's like small tactical changes that you make. Like she starts declining meetings that happen after six or something. Yeah. You know? I mean, or you know like small shifts you can make based on your own personal life and talking to people. And I do want to talk about how that worked for you at Amazon because I know it's mm-hmm. a particularly bruising culture. So yeah. I work in Seattle. I worked in e-commerce for years. Mm-hmm. And every time I mean I've been here twenty-three years, every time I changed jobs, you interview at like eight companies. So yeah. you know, there are the typical ones like Amazon, Microsoft, Expedia, Starbucks, like you just interview at all of those. So yeah, five, yeah, Amazon five different times back That's back in, right. 2000, in 2004 and in 2008. Mm-hmm. Never took the job or never, um, kept going in the interviews. I'm sure some was yeah. them, some was me. Um, but. Couple things that I thought was interesting. I mean, I mm-hmm. I have tons of friends who worked at Amazon. A lot of mm-hmm. women. Some w- one or two stayed ten years. Most lasted two. Um, yeah. But you know, I went through one interview loop, and I knew someone who knew the team. Right, so mm-hmm. I had the inside scoop. And it went really, really well. And then this one guy came in and was just a complete and total dick to me. And you talk about yeah. this the bar, raiser. The bar and- raiser. No hurt, like no smile, no like positive response, mm. just a blank slate. And then my friend called me and she was like, he loved you. And I was like, what the fuck? Are you <laughs> talking about? He was a total and complete dick to me. And she's like, Oh,
0: we do that to see how you handle negative feedback. And I was like, how oh I my think god! That, is I don't fucking want to work there, <laughs> right?
1: and there and that is not a that like that is not policy. Like, oh, like, it's not. No, I was a bar raiser. I mean, you know the policy, and of course, in a company of you know a hundred thousand people or what, or a million people, like policy doesn't mean that much. But like, no, you're supposed to. Every client is like every interview candidate is. First of all, they're probably a customer. Second of all, they have friends who also yeah. are in the workforce, and so you're always supposed to make sure they have a good. They're um, not experience. supposed to be able to you. No, no, I'm not surprised it happened because there are people who who interpret bar raisers that way. But like I was a bar raiser, and the way that I got the best information out of people was to make them comfortable. Yeah, you know, including some some candidates, like some guys who were just total. Old, old jackasses and the way i could keep them talking which is basically to be like oh tell me more about that you know and they would just tell me these terrible stories about themselves that just had me like horrified um but i'm not surprised that happened to you because i do think there is this culture where, I mean, I, okay, there was a woman who worked for me, this younger woman who was amazing. Like she will be, we'll all be working for her someday. But at one point she said, well, you know, of course, when I'm bar raising, I I never smile. I just make sure I've total poker face. And I was like, Sarah, it's okay to be nice to the candidates. Yeah. And she and she's very young. And she looked at me and she was like, really? And I said, Yeah. Yeah. You know, how are you going to get a good performance out of someone if they're terrified? You can put an interview at Amazon; it's stressful enough. Yeah, you know, without being hostile, <laughs> and you could ask people tough questions. Like I used to love to ask people. We'd have these competencies, and one of one of the things Amazon values is being able to be vocally self critical. Um. Partly because like they just like people who like to beat themselves up. But also because it's actually valuable to be like, oh, I can see where this went wrong. You know, rather than trying to hide mistakes, just to actually yeah. be like, oh, yeah, here's what we fucked up and here's how we can fix it. And so if I were to ask people that in like a hostile way, they they wouldn't be able to give me an, an answer. I had to, so I'd always be like, so here's where we care. And here's like a mistake I made just this month, for example. How about you? <laughs> and then they could kind of be like, oh, yeah, because like, it wasn't like some mean lady trying to make them cry. <laughs> but yeah. but but yeah, it is um that I'm like, it's funny. I've been gone for five years. and I'm still mad that that happened to you. And I'm like, <laughs> I need to call. How do I fix this? Who do I talk to? <laughs> well, I'm reading your book and I'm mad about like, Eighteen thousand things that happened to you. So, oh yeah, to get started. Let's read. Let's have you read the mm-hmm. one. About, um, you know which one? I lost the page. professional help. That one, and, and yeah, this was when you were just sort of getting you wish started. Yeah. yeah, all right. Yeah, I I I think this comes like probably six months into my career. Okay. The title of this chapter is called Professional Help." By day, I learn Amazon, and at night I seek out articles and listicles and TED Talks on femaleing in the business world, just in case there are tips or hacks or something that could help me do it better. This is how I know I should lean forward in my chair far enough to show warmth but not cleavage, but also sit with my shoulder blades against the chair back. And my feet on the floor. That I should stand with my hands on my hips, but never cross my arms. Make eye contact for at least two seconds, but never more than five. Look at a man's forehead and eyes, aka the business triangle, but never his nose or mouth, the social triangle. Listen with attentive interest, but without nodding or tilting my head. Speak naturally, but never end on an upswing. Speak assertively, but don't interrupt. When interrupted by a man, insist on finishing my thought, but charmingly, so he won't feel as though he did anything wrong. Don't volunteer to take meeting notes because it will seem secretarial. But do volunteer to take meeting notes because it's the only way to make sure my contributions will be captured. Do negotiate for more money, but don't let on that money motivates me. Be an advocate for women at work, plural, but not for myself as a woman at work, singular. Always take credit for my accomplishments, but also let my accomplishments speak for themselves. Raise my hand for new assignments to be helpful, not eager. Dress to embrace my femininity, but also to de-emphasize my boobs, shoulders, waist, hips, legs, lips, and hair. And smile. But not too much. Love. Love. Yeah. Like that. Now hold. I mean, (laughs) it's just like that Barbie speech. It's too hard. It's Mm -hmm. too contradictory. It's too ridiculous that women have to twist themselves into a pretzel to not Threaten men, not offend men, but not be called a bitch or ambitious or be seen as wishy-washy or too timid or whatever the fuck it is. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, there's all these rules and and why, I mean, I don't, there are very few books for men on like how to stand, you know, here's how to sit correctly. When I hear about a up, vocal upswing or vocal fry, I, people get so mad about it and, I I understand that there is something in the way it can make someone sound uncertain, but I also know that we all know by now that it's just a speech pattern. And I truly think if men were the ones who who ended sentences on an upswing, nobody would care. We've decided it's wrong because it's the way women talk.
2: Okay. Something I've opened up about a little bit, but honestly need to talk about more is how much PMS really affects me. It's definitely worsened over the last few years for me. And it can honestly take me down for a few days every month. That's why if you struggle with the same thing, I could not be more excited to tell you about today's sponsor Jubilance. And they're offering my listeners $10 off with the promo code happiest. Jubilance is the leading evidence-based scientific approach to PMS relief. They're backed by scientific and clinical trials that are placebo controlled. And showed significant relief of PMS, anxiety, irritability, sadness, stress after just one month of Daily Jubilance. I feel all of that on such an intense level when I'm PMSing, and their mission is to help menstruators live symptom-free because no one should have to suffer every month. Try Jubilance for ten dollars off by visiting jubilance.com/happiest or use the promo code Happiest at checkout. That's j-u-b-i-l-a-n-c-e.com/happiest for ten dollars off. Off.
1: Yeah, you know, and we decided so like, that you know the the model for a successful executive mm-hmm. has and continues to be men. So right. women are held up like oh if you want to be a VP or a GM or whatever you have to act like this when our entire lives we've we been socialized to do something different. Yeah. And yeah. It's just it's we I mean I, natural. I, I was at a company that was run by older British men and I got promoted to this director level position because I did really good fucking work. I'm sure I was mm-hmm. like better than all the men because they wouldn't have promoted me otherwise. Trust me. Right. They didn't. Right. right. Um, The only reason I got promoted was a bunch of women who were at a higher level than me actually went to the SVP of marketing and was like, are you really going to lose her over this? Right. Like, right. Cool. You need to hire her. because He was yeah. like, no, she's too young. She's not right, whatever. But I was told I talk too fast and I'm too excitable. And I was just oh like, dude, that's passion. And I, and it was yeah. like, I was director of product marketing for fucking entertainment imagery. We're talking Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan and Angelina. Yeah. I'm just like, I am the target market. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Like, I know what's needed here. Yeah. And and it gets to the point where you just can't be natural. You know, I think about when Hillary Clinton was running for president, there were all these things like, well, she seems stiff. She doesn't seem authentic. You know, Bernie Sanders, he seems authentic. And I'm like, well, because he can be. Yeah. Like he could show up in his fucking windbreaker and being like bah, 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 bah. you know, like I'd heard I'd hear people criticize her speaking voice. And I was like, well, his is not exactly mellifluous either, but it's all right because he's a man. And 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 meanwhile, if she'd shown up sounding and looking like that, she would have been like hanged. And but if she shows up in her pantsuits and and very polished. And she's fake. And I was just like, well, I don't know what the fuck she's supposed to do. Um, There's no, there's, there's nothing she could do. But they talk about it at a bar after they've been like slighted for the 17th time. Like we always talk about how men fail up. You know, they yeah. Just yeah. do. They're like, oh, he sucks at this. He must have management potential. And I'm like, what the heck? Right. <laughs> like how if women I've I've heard there's actual data on this somewhere, but women get promoted based on their accomplishments and mm-hmm. men get promoted based on their potential. Yeah. Really, it should be somewhere in the book. middle yeah. for everyone. Right, well, right. Yeah. And it's just it's infuriating. And I actually I we have a company in Seattle, I believe it's called Texi. Textio, yeah, texti- Textio, yeah. That's amazing. Anal- I know. They do mm-hmm. analysis of uh, job specifications, job descriptions, mm-hmm. and performance rating, you know, template wow. to strip out, not masculine language, but like, mm-hmm. you know, there are all these terms where that are basically describing a stereotypical man's attributes. Right. Aggressive, relentless. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so therefore people are being hired by like, oh, do they seem aggressive and relentless and X, Y, Z? Meanwhile, the data shows that women and people with some of the stereotypical building consensus, bringing everyone along, um, Mm -hmm you know, champion people's strengths, whatever it is, actually have better revenue performance. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, and it's funny. The woman who runs Textio actually worked at Amazon for just a couple of years, I think. She's a uh, data scientist by trade, I think. And, like, and we actually ended up, I mean, I think every company, like the org I was in started using their products, and we did run, um, our job yeah. descriptions through the, their, their feeders to see, and we change things, you know, because we have things like, you know, aggressive and relentless and just words that it's not even just that, that only men are going to be drawn to them. I actually think a lot of men who are like maybe a little older and have families are kind of yeah. over that shit oh, too, yeah. you know? I remember reading internal job descriptions when I was looking for a new role at one point and it was like, it was like, this is after I was sober, but it was like, you know, we have beer Tuesdays and political oh wars and and we have Nerf wars. And I was like, you know, I am a 46 year old mid career woman. I don't give a fuck about your Nerf war. I don't want anyone firing projectiles at me. Like, <laughs> Tell me what my opportunities are going to be. And what are you going to pay me? And, and I thought, you know, it can't just be me and it can't just be women who like, that is not the idea. No, I mean, I can see like, Men, yeah, mid-career men who are like, dude, yeah. I don't. Know this. I think in the book you described like the brotastic. I liked other parts mm-hmm. of your book. I like that you use the term brotastic, brotastic, <laughs> and any book that uses the term big swingy dick move, I'm. Oh, pro. Right. <laughs> <'Cause> I'm always <laughs> like, oh, you're a big swinging dick, aren't you? Like, oh yeah, yeah, that would be rude. But like, I'm right. like, yep. <laughs> Yep. And there are times like you want, like you you want like a divorce lawyer. That's probably who you want. You know, like there's times you want those people, but you don't necessarily want to hang out with them. We used to say at, I'd be in these meetings at Amazon with, you know, like 15 high ranking men and like two other women. And we'd be like, oh, here's the point in the meeting where they're all going to get their dicks out and put them on the table and have to measure them. (laughs) You know, you could just. They coming we we'd know based on the document we've written we're like here's here's where it's gonna happen and we kind of look at each other like, yep, here it goes. And these a lot of these guys weren't even like that. I mean these are pretty high ranking men like they were serious people for the most part like there's this misconception about places like Amazon and tech. the people who work at them are idiots. Oh, Um, no, I don't think that. Not at all. (laughs) You know, it's funny how often you'll see people be like, oh, those tech people, the executives don't do any work. And I'm like, at Amazon, at least, like, there were people who were probably worth $15 million, who were still working 80 hours a week, like, there's just something in their brains. It's like this nature nurture, I don't know what it is, but they kill themselves. Oh, but they just would have to, they would just have to measure it against each other. Like, and I just thought it was just such a strange thing, you know, that they couldn't just, just not. <laughs> well, <laughs> What's interesting when we talk about you put your job descriptions through that filter is Amazon has these leadership principles. I know about mm-hmm. them too, you know, from having friends yeah. there, but some of the leadership principle are gendered and foster this mm-hmm. culture. So. You wrote about the Amazon leadership principle, have backbone, disagree yeah. and commit. Leaders are obliged to challenge decisions, it says respectfully, but whatever. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. even when doing so is uncomfortable or exhausting, conviction, tenacious, do not compromise for the sense of social cohesion, you know, yeah. then commit wholly, healthy conflict, better ideas. But then you wrote yeah. practice, it tends to be used as a cover. For loud, rude men who talk before they think and weaponized mm-hmm. against anyone, enculturated not to act like a loud, rude man, right? Isn't that just what we're doing? Yeah. Talking? Yeah. I mean, you take this great principle. Like, it's true. Like, if you have a company where nobody will disagree, you're going to end up doing mediocre work, you, you know? So, like, like, yes, men or women. Right. It- or women yeah, like, it can work beautifully, you know, and I was on teams work so worked really well. But I remember like, I, so I worked overseas sometimes and the first time I went to Japan, um, I was meeting with some leaders to say like, you know, what, what would you, here's my goals. What do you think my goals should be? And they all were like, well, see what you can do to get them to just speak up more. Like they're just, we don't hear from them and we know they have good ideas and, and they just seem to go along to get along. And so I was like, yes, I'm going to do that. <laughs> And I get there and I've been in Japan for like all of three or four days. And I'm like, this is crazy. This is Japan. This is a culture where for hundreds, if not thousands of years, people are milder mannered. There, there's, there's not the same emphasis on, on arguing, even that your average American would have. Um, and a lot of them were women and, you know, who cover their mouths and they laugh. And it was just like you, they were asking me to, get people to go against, like, their, not just their corporate culture, their entire way of life. And I just thought, this is ridiculous. And so I started focusing on, like, well, what are some ways I could get them to speak up more, because we did want to hear from them, that they would be comfortable with? You know, I started trying to sort of nudge them for it. I found the ones who were a little more Western in attitude, who were more willing to speak up. But I would leverage them to be like a spokesperson for the group and things. But but there was this expectation that we could just somehow, you know, be like, don't be Japanese anymore. And, well, I was like, and there's not the, the assumption <laughs> that they can't bring out their best work unless they act like someone Exactly. Exactly. That they couldn't be that unless you were acting like not just a Western worker, but a Seattle tech bro, <laughs> that you're not going to be doing great work. And they were doing great work. And I also found so after I got sober, I, I had always been told in my performance reviews that I was too nice, that I needed to argue more. I needed to disagree more. And I would always say, you know, but every time I, I have a disagreement, I do speak up. Like, I'm not sitting there dying to say something and not saying it. I'm just, I'm nice. I'm just, I'm pleasant about it. And, um, and I would feel like I was supposed to be arguing just to argue, which I just couldn't bring myself to do. But after I got sober, I did become a more direct person. I started to speak up more when I disagreed. Um, I started to be a little blunter because I just felt more solid in myself. And like, people did not like that. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't like I turned into a dick. I was still me,
2: you they know. Said I they
1: wanted of- it, and then you did it. Right. And they were <laughs> and like, "Actually, yeah, I'm going to oh. criticize you for that too." Yeah, like where was that sweetheart before? And and it was just funny because I think I changed maybe you know twenty percent. I went from like a mildly reserved person, not very reserved, to like a mildly outspoken person, and. Yeah, I had people like one of my performer interviews said she doesn't suffer fools gladly and that was a criticism. <laughs> and I was like, Am I supposed to suffer fools gladly? Like how do you know fools. it was a criticism? Was it in the like areas for improvement? Because yeah. I think that would be a compliment. Right, exactly. Exactly. And I mean we all know people who don't suffer fools gladly in a way that actually is mean and abusive. Yeah. Like that I'm pretty sure that was not me because it's not my temperament. But yeah, it was, it was a, it was an area for development to basically <laughs> be more patient with dummies. Um, and at that point, I was just like, you know what? I, I already knew I was kind of on my way out. I was sort of like, I need to blow this pop stand. And I was like, I am not, I am not going to like try to change my personality again. And I had friends, women friends who were, you know, more male in their communication style, like very blunt, the kind of blunt I could never be, who were called like abrasive and um, you know, the words like that that men just don't get called. So it was absolutely a double edged sword. And and here's the danger with a place like Amazon is most of the men I worked with, I think they think they are egalitarian. I did not work with many men who would be like, yeah, I don't think women are really suited for these jobs. I I think most of the men I work with are probably like, well, yeah, women can do this too, but it's a meritocracy. And they think meritocracy is a neutral thing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, they don't understand that if someone built that system and decided what counts and what, and what should be measured. So, if you say everyone should argue productively, they're just like, well, we should all do it. And there's not this understanding that it doesn't work out well for women to do that. So when women don't do it, they're like, well, they're not a culture fit. And when women do it, they're like, oh, they're abrasive. Oh, my God. There was the section of your book where you talk mm-hmm. about the gender split and how it works when it goes up. And then this conversation you had with all these men. And yes. I read it out loud <sighs> to my husband and was like, <laughs> what the fuck? And yeah. it took him a couple rounds to figure out exactly what I was pissed about. Like, yeah. like, well, this, well, this. And it reminded me of exact, I mean, my husband's awesome, yada, yada, uh, you know, all the things. But like, I was like, you are not getting why I'm pissed about this. So right. in the book, you talk about entry level, gender split is roughly equal. Manager yeah. level women have shrunk to a third at yeah. your level, they were a quarter and mm-hmm. higher up. It was even it's lower. Like, it's like 20% or, and it just goes, I, I think at the time on the S team, which is the name for the people who reported directly to Jeff Bezos. I think there was one woman out of like 18 people at the time. Yeah. So it just, we just, it's like a reverse funnel, you know, we just disappear yeah. and, and we use this data as the teaching exercise and, 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 And the men were just, I used to have a bet with a female friend on the team about how long it would take someone to say, well, we need to be teaching, you know, preschool girls how to code. Oh my God. And it took like two (laughs) seconds, right? We we stopped betting eventually because it was like, what's the point? We both know they're just going to say it right away. Men love to say this because it's like, First of all, no one's going to say no, like, no, let's not do that. But it also kicks the can down the road, like 20 years. So like someday these three-year-olds can maybe get tech jobs. Um, They never want to talk about how to deal with the women who are there today. It's always about these cute toddlers who are going to learn to program computers. And which also, (laughs) like, yeah, but at entry level, it's a 50-50 split. So it's not that we aren't
0: getting enough women in the door. Right.
1: They're leaving. They're and you leaving. Said, like, you wrote, the questions you asked were, are we leaving or just getting passed over for promotions into mm-hmm. management? When we leave, are we going to other companies or dropping out of the workforce entirely? What's right. the operate rate for external female versus male candidates? Like, right, those were the questions. And when you asked the men, yeah, they didn't come up with any of those. No, I mean, I was, you know, Amazon's so data-driven. I just, I was like, give me more and more more data. You know, I wanted to know all this stuff and, and the men just, the other thing they say a lot is like, well, we, women just have different priorities. This is a way of saying we don't have accessible childcare in this country. Yeah, And men don't do their share of the parenting. So, you know, most of the women that I worked with who were in leadership, like a lot of them just didn't have kids like me, you know, Um, that certainly simplifies things. Um, But there was there was they didn't say like, well, we need to have accessible daycare, maybe on site daycare at Amazon. It was just like different priorities. And then they would fall back on, oh, my favorite women are too smart to want these jobs. Yeah, these jobs are I so hard. In the thing, I wrote "ha ha ha" in my, right. you know, exactly because it was like my point is not everyone wants these executive level jobs like we do. Honestly, right. it's a sign of superior intelligence that women decide to do something else with their lives. Ha 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 I'm ha. 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 Like, Fuck it, yourself. The most nauseating thing, like these men will kill each other to get these jobs. And, and it was like, you'd have guys who'd be like, well, I'm VP of whatever team and my wife is CEO of our house, you know? And it's like, and these, these guys' wives, like they had like Harvard law degrees. Like these were women who had been like serious achievers until they had a child. And then they'd always be like, we just decided it made more sense for her to be the one to stay home. And it's like, well, why? I mean, I can see if you're breastfeeding or something, but it's like beyond the first few years, does it automatically make sense for the woman what, what, to be the one at what's home? What's interesting to me is that when Mike and I had kids, I was making mm-hmm. two, or three times what he made. He was yeah. a great teacher at a private school. Oh, and wow. Yeah. Yeah. We did have that discussion because for a couple mm-hmm. years, we would probably be paying not as much, but close to as much in daycare because it's crazy in Seattle as mm-hmm. his salary. But mm-hmm. the question was, would he be happy? It wasn't right. those couple of years. It would affect his ability to get additional job. It would oh, affect yeah, his whole career. Yeah, what he wanted. And we were like, no, we're going to pay for daycare because yeah, even yeah. But like, of course, that is a financial choice we were lucky enough to be able to make hundred. Yeah. Like if you can't afford daycare, that's a totally different story. But the Amazon shit is like, you are saying in the book, like there's no information on whether people were parents or not. Like you're assuming. Right. And then the other thing you wrote, which cracked me up was it's mm-hmm. like the guys like Amazon doesn't support work life balance for anyone. It just affects women differently because we're moms. So, right. And I wasn't a mom. I mean, oh my God. This, but the question was, like, a- what can we do to support healthier work life balance for everyone? Oh my God. That reminded me of like yeah. all lives matter movement, right? It was like very all. Life- you are not like there are 20, we go
0: from 50% to 20%, but like right. all lives matter. What about healthier work life balance for everyone? And I'm like, that's not yeah. the
1: issue right and it was also what we would call at amazon boiling the ocean you know Mm -hmm. when like the question we posed to them was like what specific like levers would you pull if you wanted to start solving this you know what are some very tactical things like would we have onset daycare and they were like well but we would need to better work life balance it's like when people talk about gun control and they're like we just need to become a more a less violent society and i'm like well good luck with that. How about if we pass one law that like, you know, does away with X, Y, or Z. People you know people don't want to solve a problem when they go straight to like, we need to erase hatred from society, you know, yeah. instead of like, let's illegalize, you know, automatic weapons or something. Um and so they didn't want to talk about like a thing we could actually do. It had to be about how do we solve this for everyone. And it was very much I remember there was a point where Diversity became a real sort of broad topic at Amazon for a while. Um, you know, not just women, but people of color. I mean, there's a lot of people from India who work at Amazon and a lot of people from Asia, but not a lot of black people, not a lot of of Latinx people. And so within like two days, the phrase thought diversity had been introduced. <laughs> and I was sure. like, what does this mean? Thought diversity. And I, cause I'd never heard it before. And I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. And all the men, just all the white men just picked it up. They were like, Hey, as long as there's thought diversity, we're good. So I was like, so you could be from Stanford or MIT. Either one is fine as long as there's thought diversity. And it was just a way, and they all just glommed onto it as like, well, we don't need to worry about whether we have people who've lived as women or black people or whatever, as long as we have thought diversity. Not realizing like thought diversity comes largely from living different Those lives. Experiences. Yeah. yeah. Like, like it's, and also that women make the majority. I mean, Amazon's not just a retail company anymore, but women, make the majority of household purchase decisions yes. and like it was a little weird that we ha- didn't have more women running the website you know as customer advocates so yeah there was a lot of just men wanting to kind of feel good about themselves and i think that men don't have the ability to depersonalize and i saw this with some of the reactions to barbie you know like wow there wasn't a man i could feel good about in the movie and it's like well so, oh, like, just cause it, some man does something bad, it doesn't mean that you're bad. You know, it's kind of like with, with me too, the not all men acknowledgement. Men yeah. did not want to step back and think, Oh, I could be part of the system that is excluding a lot of valuable contributions. So they would just sort of close their eyes
0: and, and say, let's just
1: teach the toddlers. When you are in this environment where you feel like you can't keep up, your strengths aren't valued, mm. you are second guessing, and overthinking how to sit, how to act, how to hold your hands, how to modulate your voice, yeah. that we are, you know, the easy button is to drink, right? That's the socially yeah. acceptable way to numb yourself out. Mm-hmm. And in this book, you know, you talk about it, a lot, but in subtle ways that I completely and totally related to where you're mm-hmm. waking up at 630 in the morning, waking up afraid because it's a Tuesday and you're making a smoothie to cancel out the bottle of wine from the mm-hmm. night. And then mm-hmm. later, a couple of chapters later, you said my wine consumption is ticked up to X glasses of wine a night, ends. From this point forward, please add two to however many glasses of wine <laughs> right. I told you I'm drinking. I was right, like, right. yep, I, I feel that, you know? Just just like doctors apparently assume. Yeah. They, they're taught to assume people are lying by like one or two or something. Oh, my God. Um, For me, I'd be like, please add five bottles to however many glasses of wine I yeah. said. "I Yeah. so put, put that in my chart. You know? Yeah. And I am. Um, because it was very subtle like that. And also I was starting to make like a lot of money and like wine is very, it's a rich person habit. You know, it doesn't have to be, but like if you want to spend a lot of money on wine, you know, it's a passion. There's education. You could do like all this stuff. And, um it's just so by the way, all fucking marketing, you know, right? Let's, yeah, sure yeah, this is it's all marketing. Genius marketing boy. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I was in, like, wine clubs, and, you know, I could just throw away lots of money on wine, and I really liked it. You know, I think wine is really interesting, and but it's not that interesting, you know, but there's, but there, like, there was a VP at Amazon who always had, like, really amazing scotches, like, expensive scotches in her office, and it wasn't like she was sitting in there in the middle of the day, like, squeaking it, but you would go places, and, like, bottles of liquor were just on people's desks. Like in the design studio in my last role there, there was just a bottle of tequila like on one of the tables. And I don't even remember ever seeing anyone open it, but it was just there all the time. And I remember thinking, this isn't normal. Like this is not normal for an office to just have like liquor sitting around. <laughs> like like we wouldn't have piles it? of cocaine sitting around. It actually is in a bunch of workplaces. It's true. Like for employee morale, you know, companies have like a beer cart that goes around at four o'clock on yeah. a Yeah. Hi
0: there. If you're listening to this episode and have been trying to take a break from drinking, but keep starting and stopping and starting again, I want to invite you to take a look at my on-demand coaching course, the Sobriety Starter Kit. The Sobriety Starter Kit is an online, self-study, sober coaching course that will help you quit drinking and build a life you love without alcohol, without white-knuckling it, or hating the process. The course includes the exact step-by-step coaching framework I work through with my private coaching clients, but at a much more affordable price than one-on-one coaching. And the Sobriety Starter Kit is ready, waiting, and available to support you anytime you need it. And when it fits into your schedule, you don't need to work your life around group meetings or classes at a specific day or time. This course is not a 30-day challenge or a -a one-day-at-a-time approach. Instead, it's a step-by-step formula for changing your relationship with alcohol. The course will help you turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst case scenario to the best decision of your life. You will sleep better and have more energy. You'll look better and feel better. You'll have more patience and less anxiety. And with my approach, you won't feel deprived or isolated in the process. So if you're interested in learning more about all the details, please go to www.sobrietystarterkit.com. You can start at any time, and I would love to see you in the course.
1: Yeah, yeah, the or like the taps of the kitchen, the craft beer taps, or and and it's just I don't know. I think it's strange. Like, there's nothing wrong with like. Yeah, an employee happy hour now and then, you know, it's not like that's just inherently evil, but I think the worst, <laughs> the worst, like employee, you know, team bonding event I ever went on was it was a wine tasting afternoon. And in their defense, like I had joined the team after this was already planned, but, but we went to Woodenville. I was sober. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I'd been sober for years at that point, but we went to Woodenville and went to three different wineries. And and there and I actually wasn't the only person on the team who didn't drink either. Like my boss didn't drink. And so the two of us were kind of just standing around while people tasted wine for like four hours. And I was so bored. And so I want to say to people now, like, just think about things like that. Like the best team building event. First of all, I could do without team building events completely. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> the best one I ever went on was actually, first of all, it was during the day. So you're not having to take extra time we took a glass blowing workshop i've done that that as a team building that was fun let me tell you they don't let you drink there for good reason there's no drinking you're too like whoa i'm blowing glass to be like worried about anything else and i was like oh i actually am doing something new so i was like do something with your teams or just keep in mind that like drinking is not an activity like that is not a full social activity Well, and I think it is again shifting, right? With the so whole Mm -hmm. sober curious movement with, I mean, there, I got interviewed for an HR company magazine about like how to make holiday parties for companies more inclusive of people who don't drink. So at least on the agenda now, whereas it used to be, I mean, not for that, but it used to be like a, get super shit-faced and do inappropriate stuff which right it's definitely changed and like even in my last org at amazon like i i think anjali came out after i've been there like six months it basically got to the point that like this entire org of like 800 people kind of knew knew there was a sober you know yeah (laughs) like i'd have total strangers be like hi i read your your article so the the svp of this org who is an absolute doll um we would have these. It was for Amazon Go. We were launching this huge thing. So we'd have these celebrations sometimes for big milestones. And I noticed they just quietly had like their be champagne on one side of the room. On the other side of the room, there'd be sparkling wine. Like whereas before it would have been maybe some cans of Coke. It was. Equal, you know, and I don't, I'm not someone who cares about like fake sparkling wine. Like I was happy with a Diet Coke, but I was like, that was a really nice thing to do. And they didn't make a big thing out of it. They just had. They were like, here's the champagne, here's the here's the non-alcoholic stuff. And I started to notice that, you know, especially in a tech company, there were a lot of people who didn't drink. There were a lot of people who'd grown up like Muslim or Hindu who yeah. had never had a drink in their lives. Um, and then some who, who had started it when they came here. But I was like, right. There's people who, and, and a lot of people from Utah who'd grown up Mormon who just didn't drink. I was like, there's just people who just don't drink. And I never bothered to find out these people existed. Yeah. Yeah. As a drinker. So I suddenly had all these new friends who were like, you know, all from like, um, Bangalore or something, you know, <laughs> and I was getting to know them because like, I was like, oh, I can talk to you. You're not shit based. Mm -hmm. And it was great. (laughs) Well, at one point you talk about when you were stopping drinking. And I Mm -hmm. think that most people can relate to this um, because I've seen it in myself and my clients, like the back and forth rationalization and contradiction. Mm -hmm. So you start in honor berries Mm saying about
0: drinking all the time what bottle I should open what tricks I can employ to stop myself from drinking how I can stop myself from drinking the whole thing
1: and then you in the same paragraph but I'm desperate to stop thinking about drinking so
0: I'll just stop the rumination and just be a carefree thoughtless drinker like my clients have told me I'm tired of about drinking, maybe
1: that's the problem. So mm-hmm. I'll just go back to drinking and not try to stop. And that's going to be the solution, right? That's the clue. Closest- yeah. Yeah, I totally fell for that. And and there's this idea that I, I think it's true in a lot of ways that women can overthink sometimes. So I was like, I'm overthinking. And it's like, yeah, I was overthinking in the wrong direction. You know, what I had to do, the way to stop overdrinking was just to take alcohol out of my life. And I think it was like that paradox of choice, you know, when you have too many options and you just can't, like streaming TV sometimes, like I end up watching nothing because I can't decide between seven things. It was kind of like that. And I, the way I found out about Belle Robertson is I Googled the phrase, tired of thinking about drinking. And that was the name of her website. I mean, that's how I found it. And I... Yeah, I was desperate not to worry about it anymore. And I think something in me was just like, I'm not going to let you stop worrying about this because it's going to kill you at some point. Um, you know, my body was like, no, our, the brain is going to keep remembering that this is a problem. But, and when I finally stopped trying to moderate, which is like the worst, you know, just taking it off the table was like the biggest freedom. It was kind of like if I, you know, had Negative gastrointestinal effects from a certain kind of food, but I liked it so much that I kept having little bits of it and I kept getting sick. Like if I were suddenly like, you know what? I'm just allergic to this. I can't have it. My life would get much simpler. And that's how it was with alcohol. So people are going to want to know how Mm did you do it? Right. You've got just this woman wrote me. You have this intense pressure job. Nothing is ever enough. Tons of stress. Mm -hmm. And by the way, your love to drink slash have become depending yeah. on whether it's habitually or is your way to relax or whatever. So yeah. how did you stop? I, you know, I had been tiptoeing up to the idea that I needed to stop. I knew about Belle's 100 um, Day Challenge. I had emailed her and said I drunk and said I might be ready at some point soon. And she just emailed back and said, we'll be here when you are, you know, and And I woke up one morning with a hangover. My husband was out of town for a week and I was just like, that's it. You know, it wasn't even the worst hangover than usual. I just thought I I just I'm Mm -hmm. gonna do this now while I'm alone so I can just go into the cave. And I somehow I mean the first working that week. I mean maybe not that uh, week. Yeah. I was working it was the week and that was the weekend that I was working that week. Mm -hmm. And I got through the first it was and I was terrified. I, I went to lunch with my best friend that day. I didn't say a thing to her about it. I just didn't tell anyone. And, you know, I somehow got through the first two nights. And I did take a sleeping pill the first night. I was terrified of not being able to sleep. And I, I was took, like, well. Because you're like, I can't function. Right. I was like, I have to sleep. And I was like, and you're not addicted to pills. So that's fine. Like, you don't have to, you don't have to make this like train spotting, like detoxing and a, Jail cell or something. And once I'd gotten through two nights, let's see. I mean, I remember at work that day, that first Monday, just being terrified because I would just think, Oh my God, I can't drink tonight. I can't drink tonight. And I think I arranged that week to be out of my house a lot. Like I went to a couple, it was, it's handy sometimes not having children. And, um, our dog was boarded that week, I think. And I would go to a 5 PM movie. You know, just whatever was playing, that looked like tolerable because I was just there, and I could, or I would go out to a bookstore. I'd go to yoga. Like I had to get myself past like eight p.m. And somehow, if I could do that, I would. I was like, okay, I'm going to make it to the next morning. And then every morning, I would feel like the biggest success in the world because I got through another day without drinking. So and you like you were like a daily bottle of wine girl for a while. Oh or yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like daily tea. bottle of wine or a little more. Yeah. Oh yeah, I've done that. for sure on a Tuesday. Yeah. And I didn't like throw out anything. I didn't even want to touch the wine in the in the fridge. I just didn't even touch it. Um and like by the end of the week, I was already feeling like to have like I think it was like 7 days of not drinking under my belt was huge. Because I literally did not think I could do it. So, I was just high on that. I I wasn't like disappointing myself anymore. And here's the other thing, and this ties into like the work thing is, I was able to be a success every day if I just didn't drink. Hmm. And Amazon is a place where you're, they really don't want you to ever feel like a success because like it kind of runs on fear. You know, your fear of I'm not enough, so I'm gonna work harder. Plus let's face it, even in an affirming workplace, you know, you're not going to feel like you did something great every day. Like a lot of days are just like, yep, I went to my meetings. So it I didn't break anything. You're not going to feel like a superhero ordinarily. But I felt like a rock star mm-hmm. every day because I just didn't drink. And so I got really hooked on that feeling. I had to lower the bar for myself, really, to just be like, this is success for you. And that went a long, long way. I also realized I had to be nice to myself, mm-hmm. which I had not done in many, many years. I mean, Amazon again discourages mm-hmm. you discourages people from being nice to themselves, but I had already started that. Like, you know, they they knew they picked me for a reason. And so I started just like buying myself little treats or a magazine or even you know, just dumb little things, getting a manicure. And I was like, oh, I like this. I like being nice to myself. So it became this virtuous cycle. Um, and that's basically how I did it. I remember the first time I had to go to a work happy hour um, sober. I was working in Amazon Publishing, and we had like 70 mystery authors or 50 mystery authors or something in town. And publishing is very boozy. Writers are very boozy. And we had this big happy hour at um the Westin, and I was just terrified that people would notice I wasn't drinking, that I'd have to talk to people. But I was like, I had to go. And so I basically was like, okay, you're gonna stay an hour and you're gonna work the room. You're gonna make a goal to talk to, I think I said like 20 people or something. And I realized a couple things right away. One was that nobody cared or noticed if I was drinking. I went and got like club soda and this was before yeah. the mocktail era, you know. And also... It- I know, we're like old school, man. We're like OG. Yeah. No good. There was like fucking doodles in cranberry and soda or ginger. I, I mean, people do not have any idea how bad it was, you know. And I actually, from the beginning, would have soda with bitters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, bitters are pure alcohol, but it's like a couple drops. So I never felt like that was risky for me. So that gave me one option. But it was so bad out there. Like, it's it's a golden age now. I was out for the smoothie once. It's like it's like, it like better than like tap water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean the whole thing was so sad. Oh my God. I was driving I, with Lila today. You're like, it was so bad. It was off. I was driving with Lila today and she was like, so you didn't have texting when you were little. Like you didn't have I was like, dude, we wrote fucking letters. And she's yeah, like, I don't understand. And I was like, I was like, we wrote notes at class and we wrote letters. Yeah. And we talked in person and like. both had dials. You had to dial like seven numbers. <laughs> it was just so, like they were just busy. That, anyone getting sober now? It's like you have a cell phone and can text. Yeah, Me and yeah. I had like stamps. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's crazy, but I um, it was so empowering to go to the thing and just be like, "Oh, I'm working the room," because the other thing is. It's not like I was just some like drunk at company events before, oh, yeah. but I would inevitably give a couple drinks and you end up just talking to your one little group or to someone for, and this way I was like, okay, well, I need to gracefully move on from this person to get to this other person. And so I started thinking, so I was actually better at my job. And it also proved to me that like I could do this, like I, could walk up and introduce myself to people. And I don't have social anxiety anymore. I mean, I'll have little bits, of course. But despite being an <laughs> introvert, you talk about that. Right. 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 I'm an introvert, but I could talk to pretty much anyone at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could walk into a room and I might not be like delighted, but I'll just walk up to someone and say hi, you know, and it's and I I hear people say sometimes that like, once I deal with my social anxiety, I want to quit drinking. And and the thing I want to say to them is, like, you might need to do it the other way around because you're never going to deal with your social anxiety until you quit drinking. I feel and like you I have, have, to have to just pull the bandit off. For everyone, and I know people don't want to hear this, but, like, people will say to me, like, my marriage sucks. Hmm. Once something happens in my marriage, whatever right my husband's nicer I leave him or I don't or something marriage therapy somehow works then I'll stop drinking and I just it's like with the stressful job or the difficult relationship with the kid or social like you have to remove the drinking first right a lot of life gets better like my marriage yeah better my perception of marriage got way better but if not, even if it doesn't, you can see it clearly and you're capable exactly. of changes and you're proud of yourself and you deserve more. Yeah. Like, yeah. You, if you take the thing out that's clouding your thinking, dragging your body down. I mean, it, it was tiring me out in ways I didn't even realize, you know, like, so my life got better in these ways that I didn't even think it needed to get better. And also, I mean, you can if you do all that, and and it turns out like nothing gets better. You can always bring the drinking back.
2: You <laughs> the wine is
1: going to be there. Like, yeah, no one's going to stop. It's no one's going to stop you. I mean, yeah. but I do think most people who who get it out of their lives, at minimum, even if they weren't really problem. I know people who just stopped because like they were training for a marathon or something. You know, and although I trained for marathons drinking, <laughs> and Dude, I did like, everything. Oh. I was hungover. <laughs> yeah. Like, literally, triathlons, job interview. Yeah. oh, my God, yeah. all the morning plane like, flights. Yeah. like, you name oh, it. Yeah. But, like, I know people who just quit for some reason like that, and they're just like, oh, you know what, I don't, I feel better now. I don't want it, you know, so, so you don't have to be, like, even what they would call a gray area drinker. You could just be yeah. someone who's like, oh, yeah, no, I wasn't that much of a drinker, and now I don't want to be a drinker at all. Like, there's no downside to getting alcohol out of your life. It just means it's going to be uncomfortable for a, a while. Uh, yeah. guess what? So is life. You know, like, if you want to do anything hard, you're going to have to, things are going to suck sometimes. But, it's and then really when, it's unfortunate. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, I can do anything. If I stop well, drinking. Well, yeah. I still think that sometimes I'm still like, if you stop drinking, you can do this, whatever this other thing is that you think you can't do. Because it really is, it's been 10 years for me now. So I can get kind of far away from what that was like, you know? Um, but I'm on this, this Facebook group. It's like a Peloton sobriety group. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is the most like affirming place. And there's all these people on it who are on like day six or day 13. And just hearing them, and what I love about this group is that it's not about like I'm doing this so I can lose weight or something. Like it's actually a real sobriety group. Mm-hmm. It's not like I'm going to lose 13 pounds and so I cut beer, you know. Um, and and I, it's been so good for me to just read these people and being like, I have to go to my first family barbecue sober, or like my brother keeps teasing me. What do I do? And I'm just like, oh yeah, all this, all this new stuff. It's yeah. so hard, you're you like navigating know, navigating life yeah. in a new way. Yeah, yeah. But then they come back and they're like, I did it. I went to the barbecue and like, yeah, parts of it were terrible, but it was actually okay. And I let myself leave early and you're like, you, and now you've got that under your belt. It's like building muscles, new muscles. Yeah. You know, you have to lift heavy weights to build the muscles. Yeah. Um, and then they've got to repair themselves. It's no different. So tell me about your hopes for this book. Like, I want to know. Yeah. Obviously, like, blowback, right? Like, is there any? Yeah. There There has so far not been any blowback. I was, um, I remember being like, like, is Amazon going to be mad at me? You know, but I, but I I wrote this book. It's a pure memoir. You know, it's not a reported book. So, I, when I, when I needed to go look up a fact or something, you know, I always did it from public sources. A lot of times I would just go to Amazon's own press releases to be like, oh, did we have a kitchen store in 2007? I don't remember, you know? And, and so I knew in my own conscience that I was writing my experience, my story, my truth, you know? And I also, the process of writing it was hard because for the, so it took me four years to write. And the first here at least i felt like i was writing a failure story mm-hmm. and a trauma memoir and so i always felt bad sit down to write and i was just like oh let's write about how i failed some more and i realized that it was the voice of amazon in my head right? um that was coming at me about this book and i all i could think was like well, what are people going to say from amazon going to say they're going to trash me they're going to whatever and and it was only in continuing to work on it and then with a really great writing group that I started to be like, this is actually kind of a hero's journey, like, and a coming of age story that I yeah. go through this thing and then I get myself out. And that really changed things for me. And I also gave myself permission to not try to like, paint I mean, Amazon as all one way. Like there were so many people when they found out I was writing this book who were like, I hope you blow the lid off that place and they end up in congressional hearings. And I was like, this is not that kind of book. Like, this book is not going to, there's no congressional hearings. It's not a policy book. I don't, as a citizen, I have opinions about this stuff. As a writer, I do not care. No. Um, I want to write about a lunch I had with someone. And I basically at a point now where I'm like, I don't really care. What, like, if I wrote this book well, it could make people a little bit mad at me from many sides of the spectrum. You know, <laughs> there will be people who are like, well, she's just whining. And there will be others who are like, oh, how could that Nazi ever work at Amazon in the first place? I mean, I've had people call me like a good German for working at Amazon. You know, like they're That's interesting. I am very curious for all the blowback you got for Angie. Mm-hmm whether you get more or less for for this book from men yeah you know? it's gonna be interesting so i normally don't look at goodreads because writers should not but my publisher has that, a link. that i saw. i saw oh, you yeah said it's so toxic it's so toxic for writers but my publisher has a link to it on the book's page and i saw that the star average was kind of high and i was like huh I'm going to go take a look. And like the first, and people have been very kind there. And the first couple of reviews were from men who love the book. And I Mm -hmm. had just sort of assumed that men would come after me for this book. And I'm sure some of them will, like I'm sure some tech bros would be like, well, she just couldn't hack it or whatever. But, but it was really interesting to see these guys just be like, Oh, it was really, Amazon was interesting. And just to see how she reacted. And wow, there was some gender stuff I hadn't thought about. And, um, and it was really validating. And then I've had, you know, some male friends who've read the book, who've loved it. Um, I, I am sure there will be blowback, but so my friend Melissa Thebos, um, he said something on Twitter not long ago, which is that if you are writing toward like a bad faith reader, you will write badly. So like, in other words, there are people who are just going to hate this book no matter what. Like yeah. they hate it now when it's not even out. And some of them are people on the right and some of them are people on the left. Yes. And, you know, and they're just going to hate it. And if I were to write defensively to try to make those people like me, it would be a bad book. It would be a water down book. So mm-hmm. I just wrote it for like the other 80%. Yeah. And yeah, if people get mad, they get mad. Um, I kind of feel like I don't think there'll be any real reaction from Amazon. I sort of feel like they'll, you know, like it's on the site. Because they're like not going to just... send out like a
0: link to your LinkedIn article, like that guy Nick.
1: Right. <laughs> I mean, I did wonder. I was like, after that Jody Cantor story came out, um, there was some young guy who had, who had the famous quote about like, I saw so many people crying at their desks. Amazon actually, like, trashed him publicly. They actually, like, revealed quotes from his performance reviews. I mean, it oh, was, like, it sucks. was it was ugly. And I was just like, this is bad. And I remember thinking, well, I guess they, they could, like, find, like, negative quotes from my performance reviews and bring those out. But then I was like, you know, do I care? That no. one also, like, really... that's crazy. Yeah, I was like, I don't have any skeletons in the closet. And I, I think they will ignore it. I mean, I know there's lots of people inside the company who are very curious about it. Some of them have read it. I'm sure that the publisher will, you know, in advance, give a courtesy copy to the company or something. But, yeah, it'll be interesting, like, in Seattle, where, like, everybody has such strong opinions about Amazon. Um yeah. And a lot of people work there, you know, or have worked there. Oh, so many. I am- well, keep- yeah. Okay, we have to have will. dinner again, and I want to hear yes. out all the good stuff and the yes. and and the drama because you know that's fun too. Yeah, I would love to think I would love it if people at Amazon actually read it and took it to heart. I mean, it would be amazing if like Andy Jackson read it, yeah. <laughs> and thought, "Huh, could we do some things better?" But. Thank you
0: so much for coming on.
1: I told you I read it and underlined like fifty pages. So I've got a million (laughs) underlines. Could not talk about, but that's okay. That is okay. Thank you so much. Underline their own stuff. Exactly. Exactly. Get a page to come with a pen. (laughs) Yeah, you got to do a book club or something. Yeah, I should. That would be really fun. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more.
2: It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol.